Welcome to Joiners, the podcast with Tim and Danny, where each week we stroll into hospitality theater and sit front row. This week, we got ourselves a big one. We landed a whale. We sure did. This is a big episode, Danny. Yep, we got the James Beard Award winning, Michelin star having, (laughs) Top Chef Masters winner, Rick Bayless. Yep, one of the OG celebrity chefs. You know, I'm... I wouldn't say I'm unflappable, but usually I'm not super nervous coming into an interview. Unflappable. And this week <laughs> I was pretty nervous. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I wasn't nervous until I did my research and read how much he has accomplished. Yeah, and it's mind-blowing. I Yeah, then I started to get a little nervous. That did not help anxiety. me either. Yeah, like what, what do you cover in an hour conversation? Yeah, and that's why this is a seven-hour episode. Yep, seven hours. Buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're teasing, of course. We did some heavy editing. That's right. So anyway, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Rick Bayless. You know, Tim and I were talking ahead of this interview, and it kind of, it really dawned on me that you are kind of the original celebrity chef kind of from Chicago. And it's just wild how you predate so many of, you know. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying I'm really old and I've been doing this for a really long time. No, but, you, but I appreciate it. Thank you very much. No, but you, but no, you made, made it the path. Yeah, I made it to it. like TV very early before that was really a thing and uh, being a chef like as a personality. Yeah, I didn't set out to do any of that stuff. It just kind of came naturally to me. And um, I I grew up in theater, and I thought the best way to set myself apart in Chicago, which was dominated, still is dominated, by Let Us Entertain You, and they kind of called the shots for a lot of stuff. Back then, Levy was a, when we started, Levy was a much bigger player. And so we had to somehow figure out, this was in the days before small individually owned restaurants owned by chefs okay and so i think we counted six chef owned restaurants when we were in when we opened up oh wow yeah so frontera opened in 1987 87 and there were only you said like six, other. six, maybe seven of people who identified themselves as chef owners of a restaurant. Hmm. So it was really just getting started. Wow. What was Are more they... customary to have investors who assigned it, who hired a chef? And oh, yeah, yeah, for sure that. And you would say, no, I went this was before the days when being a chef was a cool thing. OK, <laughs> so if you said I'm a chef. I want my personality to infuse my menu. I want to be the person who's calling the shots in this restaurant. That was really, really unheard of. It's like you wanted to be a restaurateur, not a chef. And yeah. if you were a good restaurateur, you would hire a good chef. Yeah. But most people didn't, and it was just a revolving door in the kitchen, that sort of stuff. And it's like we, when we... Um, Well, we opened up across the street from Gordon Restaurant, and Gordon was all about Gordon Sinclair. 
and he was the big personality, but he was one of the first that actually hired somebody that they could really call out on their menu as their chef. But still, it was Gordon who, he called the shots in that restaurant, what was going to go on the menu. And, you know, as time went on, he got a little bit more lenient with that. But I will say it was a very, very different world. And so for us to open up and be and me to say, like, I, I, taught, I grew up in a restaurant. My father started in the kitchen. This I grew is in Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City, and I, I grew up in a barbecue restaurant. And, um, you know, now we revere pit masters. Mm-hmm. We didn't even have that term in yeah. our vocabulary. It was just the guy who cooked the ribs and, you know, that sort of stuff. So, and it was really funny because the it was such a, my father started doing that and then passed it off to somebody else. And, and he, so I grew up in this thing that's like, what you want to be is a restaurateur. So you don't have to do that kitchen stuff. And I said, you know, I want to do the kitchen stuff. And when I announced to my family I was going to open a restaurant and I was going to be the chef, they all looked at me like, oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) We failed, Rick. (laughs) Yeah. And they said, no, you could be the restaurateur, but you don't want to be the chef. And I said, no, I really want... The tide was turning. I wasn't the first to do this, but the tide was turning, and people were starting to pay attention to chefs who actually had something to say. And I thought, I need to say stuff. I need yeah. to really get out there and and show that chefs can be smart people who have clear vision and as well as talent in the kitchen. And when your dad was the you know the original pitmaster of this barbecue spot, um, do you feel like he passed any of those like? kind of cooking chops onto you? I don't think he did because by the time that I could remember anything, the the restaurant opened the year before I was born. So I started really spending a lot of time there when I was like six or seven. And by that point, he was not doing any of that anymore. But I hung out in the prep kitchen all the time. It was like one of my favorite places to be, partly because we had a walk-in refrigerator and I could go steal all the mise en place. <laughs> and one of my favorite things was to, to mix it all together and... I always put melted cheese on top and stuck it in the oven. You know, I was yeah. like just playing around with things. But I will say that that kind of freedom to just create from stuff that was around me was like super fun to me. And it really gave me a lot to go on. I uh, I will say that everybody always made fun of me at the restaurant for doing these things. <laughs> and um, so I would eat everything I made and I would never offer any taste to anyone else there, which is probably a good thing because it's pretty awful stuff. I remember several times, but um, I would eat the whole thing because I would say, no, I'm making my own food here. Yeah. You were in, you were already becoming pretty independent. It sounds like I was, I, I grew, like I said, I grew up in a restaurant kitchen where nothing was protected. I could do anything I wanted. I want to deep fry something and go over to the fryer and deep fry it. And, um, we're very protective of children now, and we would never let them do any of that stuff. It was another time. It was. I loved it, man. Were you that protective with Lanny when she was growing up? No, I wanted her to be in the middle of everything. So she, we actually, when she was born, we had this extra space in the basement of Frontera that we 
converted, finished into like a little efficiency apartment kind of thing for us. And so she grew up there for a long time. And then we decided to take the space above the restaurant. We did the same thing for upstairs. And we have a test kitchen up there. So it was like it was nicer for her up there. Um, but it, she always had a place. So when she came home from school, she came to the restaurant. She didn't come to our she, – she was – when she was very little, I think it was when she was like in kindergarten – the teachers asked her, where did she live? Did she know where she lived? And she came home and she said, I had no idea what to tell them. Is it the place we sleep or is it the place we spend all our time? And so it was um, it was a good lesson that she learned back mm-hmm. then. But so like it seems like you learned kind of through trial and error and kind of through osmosis being in, in the barbecue restaurant in Oklahoma yeah. City. Do you think that uh, Lainey's education was more guided, more focused from you, like as far no, as how it to... Just, it was the same, just pick it up. Just yeah. like, you know, I feel like that's the best teacher. Be yeah. around it all the time. And did she always love it, or sometimes she lamented having to come to the restaurant to see you? No, no, I don't... I, I mean, you'd have to ask her that question, but um, she just... It was just life, you yeah. know? It's like when you're a kid, you kind of... That's your life, and so that's, what, that's what you do. And so I... That's kind of what I grew up with, and I was happy to be able to share that with her as well not that necessarily I had that as part of my plan yeah I'm I'm very much a person of like look around you and see what's the next right move or what is your heart telling you things like that um, no, I was I was trying to get away from the restaurant business for a long time because I, I knew it wouldn't be right for me to inherit my parents restaurant yeah um, so I went away from that and I went into academics and um, I was working on a PhD in, uh, in in anthropology and linguistics, and then everything in my life changed, and so I had to reevaluate everything. And I'd still been cooking even through graduate school and everything, and I'd gotten way more into it. And I'd actually started teaching cooking classes and found I really loved that. And then somebody at the cookware store that I was teaching in said, "Why don't we start a little catering business?" So we started a catering and business where is this? Wow. in Michigan? Arbor, Michigan. Wow. I went to okay. University of Michigan, and so we started doing that. And then when my world sort of fell apart, um, I. I just decided I was going to take a year off and do nothing but food stuff. And I loved it. So I never actually went back. I had done all my coursework, passed my tests. I was working on my PhD dissertation, and I just never went back and finished it. <laughs> so uh-huh. I have this th- this degree that they call ABD, which is all but the dissertation. Oh, <laughs> it means give them the honorary was, degree. Come yeah. on. Yeah, you've earned <laughs> it. Yeah, talk to those people over at University of Michigan. I've written nine cookbooks, which yeah. are deeply researched. Can't they see that yeah. I rectify this yeah let's do it <laughs> this is tim's mission now <laughs> so were you working in restaurants in ann arbor too at the same no, time or were you just i was teaching? teaching cooking that's what i started doing then i mm-hmm. started teaching classes in in detroit and in toledo those are 45 minutes um away from ann arbor both of them so it was really easy to start that and it was really at the boom we don't really have cooking classes like that anymore but this was during the time when there were cookware shops opening up and lots of people were offering cooking classes um you know julia child had made a real 
huge change in the way that people were thinking about food in the United States. And it was sort of like um, the in the next generation after that. It was um, it was a really fun time to be be around. And I I was in on the ground level of it and yeah. I loved it. And so I started with this, as I said, with a friend of mine who worked at the same cookware shop that I did. Um, we started a catering business. It was the small kind of catering where um, against health department rules you do all your prep at your house and then you go finish everything in someone's home yeah so we did that kind of catering you're supposed to do it all in their home but you know (laughs) (laughs) and yeah so at what point uh did the kind of love affair with mexican cuisine uh, begin or oh, was, was your cooking always no 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 actually it was a really funny thing so I went to Mexico when I was 14 for the first time um, and that um, I had been studying Spanish and was just like really in love with the idea of world cultures and I grew up in a very middle-class family and I we always got in a station wagon and drove to some place for vacation and I convinced my parents that we were going to go to Mexico City and we were going to fly there and and I planned the itinerary at 14 the whole nine yards anyway we went and it wasn't anything like what people would anticipate a Mexican vacation these days because you'd go to Puerto Vallarta or Cancun, the Riviera yeah, Maya, you'd sit locked. on the beach and you'd probably be in an all-inclusive hotel yeah. and that would be your Mexican experience. No, I planned a trip to Mexico City, Tosco and Acapulco and um, it was like jam-packed with activities every day, but they were all cultural activities. Um, I've never been much of a beach person myself, so even at 14, I planned a non-beachy vacation so um that's i really fell in love with culture at that point how did the family receive the vacation um not very well (laughs) (laughs) but i it changed my life but uh, it worked out for me it may may have yeah right it it completely worked out for me i got what i was looking for and at 14 i couldn't go by myself so that's kind of where we are with all of that but i will say that um no, I don't think they liked it hardly at all. My mother. <laughs> no one's been back. Had, no, well, my mother, I think she. I think she went to Puerto Vallarta once, and I think she went to Cancun once. Um, but that was kind of it. But the, no, I'm the one that had the bug for studying culture and all that. So I really, I, I went back with school groups uh, a bunch, then majored in Spanish language literature and Latin American studies uh, in college. And so I was really interested in Mexican culture, but I wasn't really interested in Mexican food at the time. Then when I started, when I transitioned back into food um and nobody believes this but my specialty was french pastry and i that's what i taught all my classes in and i loved it and people started saying it's like but you you by that point i'd lived in mexico some and i had studied there and they said you got to know about mexican food so well i'd eaten mexican food real food of mexico but i'd never cooked it so i had to do my own crash course on mexican food and then for some odd well it's not an odd reason there is an explanation to it but it's bizarre 
Of course, this was before websites and everything, but um, Bowling Green, Ohio, there's a university there, and their television station put an ad in the Toledo paper, and I told you I was teaching some classes, cooking classes in Toledo, and I was teaching some Mexican cooking classes there. And they put an ad in the Toledo paper saying they were looking for a host for a public television show on Mexican food. First of all, who does that? Don't, you don't like just say we have an idea for a show without anybody to be the personality behind it. Um, and so these friends saw the, 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 I don't know why they were looking through the want ads, number one. But anyway, they saw it and they sent it to me. And I had been teaching some classes and I, I got in touch with them and found out that they already had had a host, but the host had backed out at the last minute. Okay. They had the, the money set aside for this thing. And so they they we talked and they decided that they were going to take a chance on me. They came and saw me cooking and, and they knew I could cook and talk at the same time. And that's what you have to do when you're cooking <laughs> TV. And so was that a um, skill you always had? Um, I never had trouble with it. But Just I the, but I've always been in front of crowds all my life. And yeah, so theater. Yeah. When did that start? Yeah. Just yeah, with oh, little okay. when I was little. Where no. were these crowds coming from when you were little? Um, I would or just create them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. No, I always liked that kind of stuff. And so then I was big into theater all through high school and everything. So, And when I got to college, I had to decide whether I was going to do my cultural studies or theater. And I decided that I was going to do um, the cultural studies. But my wife has a master's degree in theater, and my daughter has a theater degree from NYU. And so um, we're very much of a theater well, family. Cool. So. So I was used to doing that kind of stuff. But the the reason that I sort of embarked on that story was just to say that it was that those shows which will never again see the light of day. Um, like, and this is 78, 79? 78, 79. Yeah. Um, the, when, what I did was to say to those people, I, they paid me $100 a show to do it. And I... I said to them, I need a thousand dollars to go on a research trip to Mexico. And they gave it to me twice because we did 13 shows and then we did another 13. And so that's what started my really serious investigation of Mexican cuisine. And remember, I came up through anthropology. So I looked at cuisine through an anthropologist's eyes. And I really wanted to capture the essence of the of real Mexican food, not just collect a recipe here and collect a recipe there. No, I wanted to actually present Mexican food the way it is understood by people that live it. Hmm. Wow. Seems like a lot of things converged here. They did. Yeah. Love I could, of Mexican I culture. I could never do what I'm doing now if I hadn't had all of that schooling first in, you know, Latin American studies and then in, in Spanish language, too, and then in anthropology. And then that all came together. And then having grown up in a restaurant allowed, I mean, because like by the time I was 12, I was working full shifts at the restaurant because oh, I wow. loved it. So I was, I, I mean, I was working paid shifts that a, a normal adult would have worked. And I like that kind of stuff. And without that, I wouldn't have had the chops to do what I did when we opened yeah. Frontera. This episode of Joiners is brought to you by Stock Manufacturing, makers of fine hospitality workwear. 
You obsess over the details in your space, so why stop at your staff's uniforms? Stock has something for every aesthetic. From fine dining to a corner cafe, they've got you covered. Choose from in-stock ready-to-wear options or design the perfect custom uniform for your team. For more information, visit stockmfgco.com. So, you know, from the time that you did that, uh, the show in, you know, 78, 79, all the way to Frontera is a pretty significant gap. What was happening, uh, you know, in between in the interim? Um, I married my wife in 79. Um, I was done with Ann Arbor. She really wasn't done. She had been there for a decade and loved Ann Arbor, probably would still be living there if it weren't for me. But I said I really needed to move on and with my life. I needed to do something else. I had um, thought about opening a restaurant there, but it's it's not a the best place. It's a, it's a liquor license thing. Yeah. And liquor licenses back then cost $10,000. And it was like, we, we will never be able to come up with that kind of money and open a small little restaurant. So I wanted to move away. Um, some guys in Cleveland had seen the TV shows that I did, and they said, uh, would you come and work with us for a year while we open this Mexican restaurant? So they paid me really well. So my wife and I moved to Cleveland, both got jobs and saved every penny we could. And then we were going to move to Mexico and live there for a year. And I was going to write this book in a year. Well, five years later, mm-hmm. um, we had finished that book. And in the interim, we had been contracted by um, a a group in in California in Los Angeles to be uh, consultants for them and do menu development work and my wife did office stuff related to computerizing everything and um, we and that's what we did and that's the way we we survived is that we would go work for two months and then be off for two months they loved that schedule because that's about really how much they needed us hmm. So we did that, and that way we got to every single state in the Mexican Republic. We cooked with local cooks. We tasted the local cuisine, and um, that's our first book. Okay. And I'm assuming you have favorite regions and spots uh, throughout Mexico. Over time, you've been... How many trips would you say you've done at this point? Thousands. <laughs> oh, wow. Thousands. <laughs> For sure, that. <laughs> and where do you go most frequently? Well, I have, an apartment. Up? I have an apartment in Mexico City. And so, and the reason that we decided to get an apartment in Mexico City was twofold. One, that's the place where you can just find everything. It's like the New York City of Mexico. And if you want to go eat northern style cabrito cooked over coals the way it is done in Monterrey, then you can find it in Mexico City or Oaxacan food or good good food from the Yucatan Peninsula. You can find all that stuff. And I so I like having that at my disposal. But the other thing is from Chicago, it's like a three and a half hour flight. Yeah, it's and easy. Man, you can just get there, and I we can leave early in the morning, then by noon be in our apartment. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So we like that. Now, where do I spend most of my time? If it's not Mexico City, it would be in Oaxaca. Um, that has always been sort of a really, really important place for me. And um, when my wife was pregnant with our daughter, um, we went to Oaxaca for Christmas time. And it was the second time I had been there for Christmas time. And I just made a decision right then. I said, I'm 
this is where I want to spend Christmas every year. It's just such a magical place. And so we spent every Christmas there since then. Are wow, there any specific cool. traditions to that it's region? Very much so. First of all, everything is public. <laughs> hmm. um, we spent one Christmas in Mexico City, and I cried the whole time because it was so lonely and nothing was open and i mean no restaurants were open it was just a deserted city mm. so i said no never going to do that again and the next year was the one that we went to oaxaca and i said this is a place that you can feel like you're in the middle of all the celebrations because all the celebrations are public and so um, on the 23rd, they have this really amazing, um, it's an ephemeral art festival. So it, when, you, when you process those words in your mind, ephemeral art is something that is done for a moment and then it goes away. So there's different kinds of ephemeral art all over the world, but this one is really this one is unique because it's all done with radishes. So wow. in Oaxaca, they grow these radishes that are, they look sort of like small daikon radishes, and, but they're red on the outside, not white. And then they carve them into these really elaborate scenes that may have 60 or 70 pieces in them. Hmm. And there's different categories you can enter in. Basically, very traditional or very modern because Oaxaca is a place where there's a lot of modern artists and so they do this and they, they start they start setting up on the 23rd around noon and then in by midnight all these things that they have spent the last 24 hours without sleep creating because you have to carve it and yeah. it, I mean it doesn't last Stage there's no refrigeration yeah. no nothing okay so they carve all this stuff and then at the end like at midnight they just make a big pile of them for compost in the middle of the square oh. and so it's like <laughs> this is just so amazing so it's totally ephemeral and the people are just so in love with the stuff that they've created and they've created it knowing that they can't preserve it yeah. in any way so anyway that's one of my favorite things and then the next night the parish churches all make these really um, fun crazy fun floats um, and they parade them around the main square and then they go back to their church for midnight mass okay but it's there's a usually done on a back of a flatbed truck they will have this very it's usually a kind of Mary and Joseph and little kids as angels. And so that's what they, pro but that's not the cool part. I mean, it's fun, but the cool <laughs> part of it is that the parishioners are in a parade behind this float and every church has a church band, a marching band, because that's what you have to have to be able to go behind the coffin at a funeral and stuff like that. Oh. And so all the festivities, they have this, these basically brass, and drum bands and so you get the church band you get all these parishioners and they are all carrying these really beautiful um the candles that are ensconced in um a cellophane of bright colors this sort of a cellophane thing they call a viral and um and so they're there and then you see all this color and sometimes they're all dressed in these elaborate costumes and then through all of that is the parish fireworks master running with all these fireworks that are usually spinning on the top of reeds and sometimes they'll go through with the ones they call toritos which are like a bowl-shaped thing 
I can't even imagine ever doing this, but it's like this skeleton of a bull, and then it's got all of these firecrackers in it. And so they usually get some 14-year-old boy <laughs> to put it on his head, and then they light the whole thing, and it's just fly. All these, these fireworks are going off while this guy is in there. I can't imagine that it's not, like, devastatingly traumatic, but it's, <laughs> it seems like it would be devastatingly traumatic, right? Yeah. So, Deafening, um, yeah, that. That anyway, kid hasn't heard for years. For sure. yeah. Anyway, I like all of that. I love public festivity. I love the, the, the wonderful effervescence that you sense in this kind, those kinds of things. And then on, on the next day, on the 25th, we host a big party out at a place that makes barbacoa. Mm. And we order a whole animal done for us in a pit, and then we just invite everybody that we know out there, 40 or 50 people, and, and eat barbacoa in the afternoon. So I, I can't think of a better way yeah, to spend it. Yeah, pretty ideal the, Christmas <laughs> tradition. <laughs> yes. Very cool. Are there are there signature uh, dishes for Christmas in Oaxaca? Is barbacoa well, pretty traditional? Uh, sort of like everywhere else in Mexico, you got to have your bacalao dish. So um, that that's a main thing. But then um, after you get that bacalao dish on the, sometimes they do a roast turkey thing, but um, it's never really attracted me. I like the bacalao dishes, but. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically, those are the, the essential things. There's buñuelos, and they're very traditional in Oaxaca. And they're made like paper-thin fritters that are about 14, 15 inches across, uh, so they're huge. And they make them in these street stalls, so you get to see them rolling them out. And then they pull them to, to make them thinner. You could almost read a newspaper through them. Hmm. And then they fry them. And then they do this thing which is very odd, but Oaxaca is a a pottery-making area. So they get all the seconds of pottery, mostly these bowls that people use every day. And then they take these fried fritters, they break them into about six pieces, dunk them in a raw sugar syrup, pull them out and put them in a second of pottery and you eat it like that. Um, they, in Mexico, they love what I call the chilaquiles texture, which is crisp, softening to soft, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they like the little tiny bit of crisp, but also that softening thing. Yeah. We don't like that in the U.S. We want it to be softer. We want it to be crisp. <laughs> but it, they really like it as that sort of intermediary thing. So you eat that and then you pick up the bowl when you walk to a certain place and you pick up the with your bowl in your hand and you smash it as hard as you can against the wall or the pavement (laughs) and the more the more pieces that you can smash it into supposedly the better your luck for the next year Hmm. that's a fun tradition too that can help tim work on his anger issues i think you were doing that at your wedding weren't you (laughs) yeah stomping on the plate i did i stepped on a glass you stepped on a glass (laughs) it's the same kind of thing it's the same kind of every culture's got their own version Yeah. yeah um well, it's very cool. I had no idea. I mean, been to Oaxaca once. Uh, I'm really intrigued, it, but I'm, I'm going to crash in the party next year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're always invited. We love to get people down there for Christmas, and then you're invited to the 25th, our our, our shingdig that we do. That's awesome. Yeah. So, do you stay there through the first of the year too? 
No, it's too busy back here. Yeah, <laughs> I got to get back for that week between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. So we usually come back on the 26th. And is the onus on you to prepare all this food down in Oaxaca or you get to just be a spectator eating the food? No, mostly I'm a spectator eating it. But <clears throat> my daughter um, had a child two years ago. And so we switched from staying in a hotel to this friend's bed and breakfast, which is just really wonderful. So, so that we could put her to bed um and because usually we would stay up until one o'clock in the morning on christmas eve because we'd go out for dinner at 9 30 at night after the spectacle in the main square was over yeah. um, but now we instead go back put the little one to bed and then make our own christmas eve dinner and what i usually make is a big seafood stew because there's some really good seafood you can get there so um, i like doing it that way that's cool um, all right, so back to the U.S. We are in Cleveland for some period of time. Yes, when one did, year exactly. Okay, and then when does the when did you get to Chicago, and when did the idea to open Frontera? Oh, it, well, it's um, we were super poor. We didn't have any money at all, and we had spent. You know, we would work for two months in L.A. and then be off for two months. But in that two months we weren't working, we would spend every penny we saved in the two months prior. And so we were literally living hand to mouth. And I had dreamed of living in New York or San Francisco, thinking that's where we should open a restaurant. But we got um, at the end when we finished our all of the research for our book, we had sold the book. We had a deadline by which we had to turn it in, which we knew was going to take us forever. We saw what the rents were in San Francisco and New York. <laughs> and um, all of our worldly possessions that we didn't have on our backs were in Chicago because Deanne, my wife, grew up here. Got and it. we thought, oh... Sounds like we're going to be living in Chicago for a while. <laughs> now, my wife grew up in the western suburbs out in Wheaton, and um, she had never lived downtown. And I just said, no, I want to... Uh, I wanted to live someplace like Lakeview because it looked like the rents were cheap and, you know, they, it looked like it was going to be people our age that were living there. So that's what we did. We came here and we finished writing our book and turned in the manuscript and then thought, oh, now what do we do? <laughs> and uh, started thinking about opening a restaurant because I, I had by that point fallen in love with Chicago because it just felt to me, we had, for four and a half years, we had been deeply into the restaurant culture of Los Angeles. And this was back when uh, Wolfgang Puck had just started Spago, and it was like, it was so hot that the whole scene there was just white hot. But man, after three or four years, you kind of, unless you're Wolfgang Puck, you kind of got to close up and reconcept yeah, and do something next. So you know times. that, yeah. yeah. So... If for me, I fell in love with Chicago because it looked like in Chicago, if you did a good job, if you kept current, and if you offered something that was a fair value, not cheap, you didn't have to be cheap, but just, you know, not, not, not the, gouging, not yeah, gouging, not extravagant, yeah. then you could stay in business for a long time. And I grew up in a restaurant that was there for 37 years, and we are coming up on 36 years in our restaurant. Oh, wow. <laughs> so Congratulations. I got I to gotta hang on for that <laughs> yeah, last year, right? Eclipse it. I so mean, that I, is quite I proved, the achievement. I proved my, my, my idea about what Chicago valued. Yeah, I think that's um, true. It, it came true for me. Yeah, it's validating. So you mentioned at the time it was like, let us entertain you and leave you running yeah. the show. What, uh, 
where was the concentration of restaurants and where did you want to open up? Well, I, I wanted to be downtown. This was the deal. My wife had never lived the restaurant life before. And so I thought if we're going to make it as a couple, we have to be in a place where we can afford to be open five days a week, lunch and dinner, and actually do good business, all of those services. So Cafe Baba Reba had opened up on Halstead, but I quickly threw that out. I mean, it was a very hot area, but it was nights only. You couldn't be open for lunch. And so we started looking at places downtown, and this is before River North was River North, and it was really scuzzy. But we found a place we could afford that was on Clark Street there, and Gordon Sinclair had his sort of... Um, it, it, when people went to Gordon Sinclair, they thought they were slumming, but they were going to go and have this fine dining meal, you know? Yeah. And so we thought we can always say that we're kitty corner from Gordon and that it's okay to be here, but people would still call up and say, is it safe to walk across the street? Because wow. the whole neighborhood was nothing but porno stores, <laughs> but it was the main, it was the main hub for the male hustlers. Whoa. And so the porno stores really really uh, really catered to the gay clientele and on the other uh, kitty corner from us on the other corner down at Hubbard Street there was a place called the New Flight which was the main bar for all of that activity wow. and Chicago's um, red light district it was totally a red light district huh. but so we, no is, that the, is that the area that was called the levee because I remember I never heard it during some that. history of Chicago and uh, uh, there's like that was I mean, this is like turn of the century, like yeah. I think this came later, but but remember, the notorious thing in Chicago was the Clark Street flop houses, and they were the ones that rented by the hour. Mm -hmm. And when we opened up Frontera (laughs) next door, where Topolo Bampo is now. Maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, but anyway, <laughs> where Topolo Bampo is now, um, that was one. It was a working flop house. It, it wow. was there. It had a. I always say it had a bar on the main floor called the Rendezvous for a reason. <laughs> and upstairs was a, was a, a place that you oh, you got by the hour. Ephemeral and art. It was yeah. totally yeah, ephemeral. Art. Yeah, let's just say that. Yeah. That's a, I never thought of it in that way, but I'm, my mind is churning now. So. <laughs> oh, that's good. Wait, so how did you, so when the idea came up a couple of years later to open Topolo, or do you ever just call it Topolo? Do you always call it? No one's that? ever called that before. <laughs> yeah, no, before no, that's before what we call it. Yeah, we, no, we, saying, we call it Topolo. I don't want to be disrespectful or anything. We don't, we don't call it Topo, which means a mole. So we don't, <laughs> we don't call it Topo. We call it, I, I can't stand it when people call it that. Um, but uh, Topolo is what we call it, yeah. Um, so did you have, like, the landlord was trying to get this flop house out of there and get you into there? Or this yeah. was operating above... He, is. It, he bought the same landlord as Frontera, now the landlord of River North, uh, Al Friedman. Mm-hmm. And um, he had already bought the old courthouse building and done that renovation. And he had inherited from his father's some of these properties along Clark Street, including okay. that flop house. <laughs> with the rendezvous. Yeah, with the rendezvous. And so he just decided he was going to gut the whole thing. There was nothing to save in the building. And so he gutted the whole thing. And at that point, we were very successful with Frontera. It was like two years later. And um, we said we would take the space, and, and he worked with us to convert it to a restaurant and all that. So, hmm. And how far apart were those openings? 
two uh, years. Let's see. So well, in March of 87, and in November of 89, a little okay. over two, so two years. two and a half years. Yeah. yeah. And what was the, like, how would you describe, you know, the, you know, the, the tag for Frontera okay. versus for Topo? It was, that was very calculated. So I was in love with fine dining. Remember, I came up through this whole French cooking world and did pastries and all that sort of stuff. So I was really into fine dining. And when we lived in Mexico City, my wife and I would go to these fine dining Mexican places that had just amazing service, beautifully presented food. And I was like, yeah, nobody in the United States knows this even exists. So I said, I want to open a fine dining Mexican place. And I know when I said those words out loud to most people, one person even had the courage slash audacity to say <laughs> to me, um, does that mean you just put parsley on the tacos? Um, so I shut my mouth and just said, You'll oh, yeah, see. something like that. Yeah, That's precisely like, anyway, what we mean. Um, <laughs> That's exactly so, what we mean. <laughs> so I wanted to do a real fine dining version and really, again, capture what I wanted to capture in Frontera, but do it in a slightly different way. You know, the, the atmosphere of Frontera, what we were going for was to do something that was sort of mid-scale, upscale casual. Let's just call it that, upscale casual. So nice service and all that sort of stuff. Uh, good plateware, good silverware, um, and um, an unexpected decor. No serapes on the walls, no mariachi music on the, uh, on the playlists or anything like that. We wanted to kind of give you a different perspective on Mexico, but at an accessible price. Still, it wasn't what you're corner Mexican restaurant that was doing combination plates would have on the menu. It was definitely upscale where we worked with good meats, especially everything was grilled, everything you, you would get something that didn't look at all like what you would get at your corner uh, Mexican restaurant. Um, so we wanted to come in above mid scale a little bit, but not so that people would go, what is this, you know? So they could recognize it and feel comfortable, but it was really popular right off the bat. And um, it gave us the opportunity to sort of hone that idea so that when the other space came available, we could say, okay, now we're gonna just take that to the next level. And it was really funny because sometimes we would serve exactly the same sauce in both restaurants usually because something had screwed up or whatever, mm -hmm. or we're running out of something or whatever. And so we would do it, but then people would come to us and say, oh, we've eaten at Frontera many times. But Topolo. Oh, <laughs> the sauces in Topolo have so much more refinement. And I, I wanted to say to them, I think it's because it's a little quieter and the, the tables yeah. are further apart <laughs> and you can concentrate more on what you're eating here. Yeah. And so you picked up the new nuances, but they were always there in Frontera as yeah. well. I mean, you've had a Michelin star there since 2000. Since the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, since since they started offering them. Michelin in Chicago. In Chicago, yeah. yeah so it's choosing impressive. your table does matter, <clears throat> Danny. <laughs> for the for the holistic experience, it, right? It, yeah. I think it really does. Yep. All right. And now, I'm sure 
that we are not having any Michelin inspectors listening to this, right? Mm-hmm. You're going to promise me of that. Yeah, Danny's off the committee. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, got so booted. Got off, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Too many violations. So, yeah. <laughs> I will say that they always say it's only about the food. It's not about plateware. It's not about your bathroom. It's not about the decor of the place. None of that. Not even the uniforms? Uh, <laughs> Well, maybe the uniforms. <laughs> All right. Maybe the uniforms. Maybe that would be the one <laughs> yeah, exception. The one thing, yeah. the, it's about the food and the uniforms. <laughs> and <laughs> there's our pull quote. <laughs> <laughs> so I, but I, I don't buy any of that because you always see the top things going to the places that have the most expensive china mm-hmm. and the most yeah. expensive glassware, all of that sort of stuff. And occasionally there'll be an outlier, but mostly there's not. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I would agree with that. But I think, like you said before, I mean, people perceive it differently based on those characteristics. They do. They they taste the food differently. Yeah, I, I think that's very legit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at what point did you decide to bring the food into packaged form? And was that and was that your idea, or were you approached? It was not my idea. So, one of our really regular customers loved our steak tacos and this one other dish that we often had on our menu uh, puntas de filete al guajillo and he used to come and sit with his wife at the back counter and so he started talking to me and he was doing an MBA he worked for Kraft Foods mm. he was I think the brand manager for Belvita or something like that but anyway he was doing his um, his MBA at Northwestern at Kellogg and he said he wanted to do his final project on our restaurant on developing a package line. Oh, wow. So it was Whoa. like a dissertation? Or, uh... Uh, no, it wasn't that quite that full. You don't do quite that much research when you're doing it for an MBA. But anyway, so he did that, and we kept in contact. And Whoa. then he started pursuing me, really, like, let's do this. Were you skeptical? And very skeptical. And I didn't think we could find anybody to make it. And mm. so I I met with him once a week. Oh, he hated this. But I met, met with him once a week, and we just talked for an hour just to get to know get each to other. Know, it's yeah. like, if we're going to do this, I wanted to know him personally and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, it drove him crazy, but he did it. And finally, we decided, yeah, we can do this project. And so... Um, that was about 27 years ago, something like wow. that. Yeah, it was 95 when it launched. Was that right? the li- nine? I can't remember. That's, yeah, I did some <laughs> It's research. all a blur yeah. now. I think it so. launched in 95. Yeah, so it's coming up on 30 years ago that we launched that. Wow. And um, we started off just carrying it around in, in trunks of cars and delivering it to places like Crate and Barrel that would take wow. it. How did you were very hands-on. You weren't just developing the food. You were... Part oh, of this, no, we the were, sales process and the whole thing. Wow. Yes. But that's, I think that's what surprises me about you the most is your seemingly unlimited bandwidth to handle so many disparate projects. Oh, the I, restaurants, I, I'm, that's the just kind of who I am. The media, the writing, like it's, I, I like to have lots of projects going at any time. Yeah. And um, that's what sort of keeps me going, keeps get, gets me up in the morning. And I'm, a very creative person. Um, I like when I have to do financials for the restaurant and all that, I'm that I have to force myself to do because that's not in my wheelhouse. Really. I can, I can do it, 
but I really, and I like to do it for short periods of time. Yeah. And then my mind just wanders on to the next creative project that I'm working <laughs> on. So I'm very lucky to have people around me that love that kind of stuff and do it really well. Yeah. Because as we all know, the margins in a restaurant are so tiny that if you're not like on everything, you will go out of business really fast. Yeah. Yeah. Joiner's podcast is brought to you by Party Can. Party Can is a premium batched, large format, full flavored cocktail that uses high end liquor, real juice, real ingredients. It's all natural, gluten free. It's 12 drinks in a single can. And guess what? That can actually floats. You can take it to the beach, the pool, on the boat, camping, hiking, to the game, everywhere you go. It is recyclable and reusable. It's a party in a can and everyone's invited. Party Can is available at multiple retailers around Chicago, around the country, and you can always go to drinkpartycan.com to find a local store or have one shipped to you or a friend. And now, back to our interview. So the financials are least fulfilling. What's the most fulfilling discipline you pursue? Um, menu development. We change our menus all the time. When we first opened Frontera, um, because Mexican sauces, Mexico, the cuisine of Mexico is all about the sauces. When people tell you the name of a dish, they don't say I'm having chicken. They say I'm having mole poblano. Mm. And so everything is called by the sauce, but they take a lot of work to make. And so when we first opened Frontera, we changed our menu every Tuesday. We were open Tuesday through Saturday, and we changed our menu every Tuesday day and that we did that until we opened Topolo and then we went to every two weeks now we're on every four week uh, but this rotation. isn't an entire changeover this is or is it well in the beginning it was an entire changeover wow it was I mean we had a few staples on the mess like I always said people said oh this is your signature dish this chicken dish you do and I go no, that's the safest dish on our menu. And it's there just for those people that don't want to get into the good stuff. <laughs> so um, it wasn't a signature dish, but it was something yeah, like, people please loved. don't say that. Yeah, yeah, please don't say that because then everybody's going to come in and order it. Yeah. Um, and we wanted them to order all the rest of it. But um, nowadays, it's, uh, we change every four weeks in Frontier, we change nine dishes. Wow. And so that's a, a, on a four week run. And how many are you contributing? Um, I, you know what? We do everything as a group. Okay. We don't do anything um, individually. So you could say, People, like, I have this crazy idea for this. Let's work on it yeah, together. What, or... what my way of saying that, because we're extremely rooted in tradition. So I would say, you know this traditional dish. I have this idea to express it this way. And so that's kind of the way that we talk always. It always starts with tradition and then our expression of that. And that may be also, it may look quite traditional or it might look way more modern. We do both of those things, but that's the one thing that we really pride ourselves in in our restaurants is that we're working from really deep knowledge of tradition. You know, when you came to do the podcast, we were upstairs in our library. So yeah. there's like 3,000 volumes up there in the yeah. library. And most of them are from Mexico and um, are, they give you everything you need to know. 
Uh, we just came back from a research trip to Ch Tabasco and Chiapas. Uh, we're working on a new menu for Topolobampo. I mean, excuse me, we, we're working probably two new menus for Topolobampo because um, we got so much material. Um, but it was always like when we would talk to people about the dishes and what they put in the dishes, we didn't have to go into their kitchen to learn how to make these dishes from scratch because we can always supplant um, that knowledge with something from books that we have. Mm -hmm. And we have all these really traditional books that you can't find anywhere in the U.S., but I've collected them for 45 years. Wow. And, I mean, kind of counter to, to that technique where you're changing things so frequently, when you make a menu for, like, a tortoise frontera, how do you go about that if something's going to be more fixed? Classic, classic, classic. That's what I'm looking for. Um, when, it, when you get into stuff that's like... Um, like the vegetarian realm, okay? So we may take a classic flavor and express it with all vegetables, okay? So it may not be a classic vegetarian dish from Mexico, but the flavors are anchored in, in yeah. Mexico. My wife and I, on a side note, every time we, we travel somewhere, we get a, uh, a fully loaded guac from Tortoise Frontera. Yes. That's like our good luck. Yes. We always Frontier have one, no matter what time of day. Would there be a margarita it. with it? What and no, we we don't, but we should do that. You I guess. should do that. <laughs> Come on, Danny. Yeah, really. Up your average do check. Do you know? <laughs> <laughs> but do you know that you can also get it to go and take it on the plane? No, now, we do. Yeah, that's we a do great it to go. Tip. Yeah, we take. No, it I'm to talking go. about the booze. Oh, oh yeah. That's okay, smart. that's. I did really not know smart. that. Okay, so you have to check mm. nowadays. But pre-COVID, you huh. could do that. You can take it away wow. from from our unit, but they stopped allowing any alcohol that was not served by them on the airplanes um, but I think they're going back to that now sort of if well I don't th I, I don't call us post-COVID but in this place of COVID that we are right now yeah, yeah. my mother-in-law was recently traveling and she saw you like kind of behind the scenes yeah, yeah. in the airport like at the tortoise frontera i go one, every time you know. i go every time I, I go to the airport to travel i always go and do a line check at the at the restaurant wow yeah. That, that, that's <laughs> my preferred everywhere. airport meal as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you that's very good. much. Yeah. That's yeah. music to my ears. That's yes. Don't tell Terry so that. if they so if they stop you at the gate, you say it's just an agua fresca. Agua fresca. No Because you can't tell you can't yeah. tell the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> that's a good pro tip. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's limeade. Limeade. <laughs> yeah. um, one other thing that I feel like worth touching on: you've competed uh, on yeah. a national stage uh, on TV. How? How uh, how did that experience go? Do you enjoy that sort of thing? No, um, I just mouthed I hated it so that I didn't really have to say it. But now that I decided I can't do that, I have to say it out loud. No, um, it was very hard. Um, let's see. Um, they that was the first season season of Top Chef Masters, yeah, and and you won it. I wanted to, it's still surprising to me. But anyway, I'd never been on one of those comp. I had been on one competition show before that. Um, it was, I don't remember the name of it, but it was an early Food Network show. And they tried to get me to go on it several times. And I kept saying, no, 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 I don't want to do that. And they said, so if we put you against Jacques Pepin, would you come on? And I said, of course I'll come on because <laughs> he could beat anyone. And so if I lose, I'm not losing, losing yeah. to some schmuck I'm losing to somebody <laughs> yeah. who's just like amazing and I can bow down and say yes you are the master okay smart. so I went I did that one but then smart. I went to um, 
they, they, they contacted me about doing the Top Chef Masters, and you were in a pod of four people, but only one person got out of that pod to go to the next level. And so I thought, well, that's only you only have a 25% chance of winning this thing. <laughs> and so we did our first thing and second thing, and it was like, God, I won both of them. And so it was like, okay, now I've got to go on to the next one. That's going to be really hard. <laughs> and um, I just kept not losing. I say the way that you win those things <laughs> is not, not by winning every one. It's by not losing. Because lots of the times the people that win have really won very few competitions along the way. But they always stayed, you know, in, in that So were you making ground. safe choices on purpose? No, I I just so you wasn't trying to No, not I wasn't lose, making that just worked out. I wasn't making any choice that was beyond my grasp. That's the thing that mm. mostly makes people lose. Yeah. Um the other thing that makes people lose is changing course midway. So if you decide you're going to make X dish and then half the way through you say, "God, this would be so much better if I would do this." Yeah, you can't just You start can't. Over. And if you if you do it or if you try to modify your initial dish to be that other thing, it always it always loses. Yeah, yeah. you're fighting against the clock too. You're always fighting against the clock, and they a lot of chefs would think that when the clock ran out, they could finish their dishes with all the garnishes and everything. Yeah, but that's not it. So when they say three minutes, you're done. Yeah. It'll take you that three minutes to find the right plate, put it in the plate, get the garnishes on, get it in the window when they say, put down your knives. And I was with several chefs that said, the dish is ready when I say it's ready. And they said, this doesn't work that way. So <laughs> it's, wow, um, yeah. it, it was hard. I will say that um, for me, I know this is just me, but I had... PTSD when I got home and I would wake up for about two months I'd wake up in the middle of the night screaming because the pressure was so great and I didn't I mean you know I I was on TV and I had all these books and had a well-respected restaurant the pressure to multiple well-respected restaurants (laughs) and um, that was the reason that I found it such a so much pressure yeah I don't have to do that anymore yeah that's the ultimate being put on the spot it is that level of audience but you stuff you thrive I mean I don't you you obviously succeeded you won yeah I won Um, thrive might be you know, an exaggeration because yeah. you didn't love th- doing survive, it. Survive, survive <laughs> is the survived word. Survived and won. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, needless to say, if they asked you again, you'd say no. Yeah, no. No, I would say no. I would say no. <laughs> um, Tim, are there? Yeah. Well, I will say yeah. about that. You know, that Top Chef is so much about young chefs who don't have a career. I mean, they have a career path, but they yet haven't made it. And so they're, man, they are just about, I'm going to do well on this show and I'm going to just vaunt that, vault that into a career that is going to make me really famous and then I can have a whole slew of... Re- it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm, yeah. And so many of those chefs have not really thrived. I mean, Stephanie Isard here is a complete exception and she is really clear about her where she's headed and what she's going to do and when she opened the girl and the goat 
it was like, no, she didn't just leave it and say, no, I want to be famous and be on TV all the time. No, she did do her TV stuff along the way. But man, she was so dedicated to that space. Yeah. And that's what you have to be. And I had already done that when I competed on Top Chef Masters, so I didn't really have anything. All I didn't want to do is screw up so that it looked like I was fake or something. Yeah, well, you succeeded in that regard. Now, you've cooked at the White House, correct? Yeah, that was really amazing. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Um, It it wasn't what I expected it to be. Um, You say state dinner. The word dinner should just be in quotes there because the dinner is absolutely the most minor part of the evening. Um, The whole thing starts with the arrival of the 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 guest head of state okay and so that's a big deal then our president and that president or prime minister whatever um gets up and has the chance to talk to all these reporters that are on the lawn and that's where you can get your agenda out there okay so that when the meetings happen the next day in private or mostly in private that you you have already laid out what you're going to talk about and you do that to the press then the the formal line happens all these the dignitaries are together and then the people who have been been invited to the event they all come through that line and they shake hands and that's the only time that anybody can say anything to our president or to the invited president or prime mm-hmm. minister. And so that that could take anywhere from 15 minutes to get those people in to an hour and a half. And as the chef, you have no idea what the timing is going to be like. Oh, okay? man. That's and during this time, all the people, <laughs> as they go through the line, they're just put into a hall, like a waiting, a waiting place, and you pass... Well, appetite hors d'oeuvres you pass them but no one eats them because they don't want to drip anything on them or anything Uh and so they all say no which (laughs) is just the most bizarre thing you have to have them but nobody eats them is this a like a one percent people eating the food one percent of the people are eating it or like a zero percent something no no it's like one (laughs) percent and so anyway they everybody's seated wherever it's going to be they're seated there and then the the dinner starts and they want five courses and you have to be out and well they originally said to us 45 minutes for the five courses i think four courses let me just say take that back it was four courses four courses in 45 minutes and then they gave us an extra five minutes because we were from out of town (laughs) so they gave us 50 minutes to do our four courses but um it's really amazing 50 servers for 200 people so everybody picks up two plates drops them comes back picks up two more plates and the place is served okay so it was you know, just really amazing. And what a lot of people don't understand is it's served by the White House kitchen, but the White House kitchen does not serve the West Wing. So the oh. White House kitchen is sort of like the personal kitchen for the, the president and what we have to say now his wife because we haven't had any female presidents okay yeah so anyway that that's what it is and then they they host the state dinners and then they host a few other events during the year but it's not like they're 
pumping out a lot of food every day. It's a small amount. So they have to really move into this big thing. And what the, the kitchen that provides for the West Wing is underneath the West Wing, and it's done by the Navy. So they get all those Navy people to come over and work the lines with us when we were making the food for the 250 people that we had wow. um, for our 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 meal so anyway it was very cool and then i got to go out and be hugged by michelle obama but remember that they were regular customers in our restaurant before they went to washington and there there were rumors that you were in talks to possibly be the executive did you start that room (laughs) (laughs) and i perpetuated it and you did okay somebody (laughs) must have at some point because i was never in contention for that and never would have taken it well we're gonna rectify that too or no he doesn't want it never mind i don't want it it. (laughs) yeah Yeah. so you would have declined i would have declined yes wow no you have to give up your your restaurant to do that oh you can't you can't have it no you can't have anything where you would have a commercial success oh whoa so yeah that seems like it would have it, been impossible yeah. yeah you know how trump divested in all of his uh, business dealings to become president anyway, yeah, that's a different of podcast more on that one to come in the next yeah. few months I think. yeah um so i have a, i have one more question sure. possibly before we get to the lightning round the gratuity round oh. but of all the i'm getting know, nervous awards and achievements <laughs> over your career uh, which has been the most significant or the most meaningful. Um, oh, that's a really hard one because, like, we have won best restaurant at Beard twice, and there's only one other person that's done that, and we had won it for Frontera and for Topolo, and that that's like a really big deal. Um, and I won Best Chef and all of that. That that was a hard one for me because I was up against these French chefs that I think are better at technique than I am. And I, it took me about six months to figure out why, or at least to rationalize in my own mind why I got it. Mm. Um, and if I, finally I thought, oh, you know what? It's all about are you emulating a, 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 the career of a really good, good chef who does lots of things, who represents what it means to be a chef, not just can you cut Brunoise better than the next person, or can you put more truffles and caviar on mm-hmm. something than someone more else? More parsley on tacos. Yes, and more <laughs> parsley on tacos. Um, but so I, I finally made peace with myself because I thought I shouldn't have won that. I said, those other guys are better than me. It's stupid that I won it. But anyway, um, that, but I will say when I got humanitarian of the year, that really meant a lot to me because. I just feel like that as a chef, I want to leave this world a better place than when I came in. Yeah. And if I can do something really um, big in that regard, then I will. I mean, I was one of the people that founded the Chef's Collaborative, which was all about sustainability back in the days when we didn't even know what that word meant. Mm-hmm. And I worked on that. And I've done a ton with the Beard Foundation and a lot of other organizations. Of course, we have here, which we've had for 20 years, is the Frontier Farmer Foundation, which um, does a massive amount to grow our local purveyors and um and now we actually have a, we have another we have a family foundation that supports the arts in Chicago mostly theater live theater so you know I just I really believe very strongly in helping to create a better world than what I came in with yeah. and so I guess that's probably I would be my answer to that 
It's a good one. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. This podcast is brought to you by Geneva. Danny, what is Geneva? Well, Tim, I'm glad you asked. Geneva is a European spirit with a wide range of flavors and lots of personality. It always uses malt spirit and juniper and other botanicals, so some would place it somewhere between gin and whiskey. It can be floral and bright like gin or round and malty like whiskey. Whatever your preference, there's a Geneva out there for you. Even me? Even you, Tim. This campaign is financed with aid from the European Union. Now for the gratuity round. The gratuity round. <laughs> All is right. it 20%? Is... <laughs> it's 20% of the podcast. At least. <laughs> yeah. Rick Bayless, what's your death row meal? My death row meal? Yeah. Um, can I put it in a place or does it have to just be sure. food? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, setting is great. I, yeah. The setting is a place out south of Mexico City in the, ta- in the suburb of Tlalpan called El Arroyo. Um, and they do um, barbacoa, carnitas, chicharron. They have roaming bands that represent all the major styles of Mexican regional music. Um, it is the most joyous place with the simplest but well-prepared food. It is, every table's got 20 people at it and there's three or four generations at every table. I just like, it to me is the epitome of how to bring people around a table and celebrate. And that's the last thing I want to do. Before the firing squad. Yeah, before the firing squad, (laughs) I want to have a big celebration. Awesome. I wouldn't mind that actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a bad way to go out. (laughs) Uh, all right. What's your favorite hidden gem restaurant? I assume that's also south of the border. Um, let me see. It could be in Pilsen too, or you know, yeah, south um, of the border I, of yeah, two ninety. I never right. answer that question when it has to do with Chicago restaurants. So um, it could be anywhere uh, then. Okay, then it's gonna. Let's go to. Um, let's see where. Um, I'm gonna say. I think in in Mexico City. I'm gonna say. And um, it's a place called Marigold. It's in um, San, San Juan Chapultepec, just on the other side of a Condesa neighborhood. And um, it's run by a couple of friends of mine. He is Indian. That um, a family all comes from Kenya. And she is Mexico City. And they just do this fabulous mixture of who they are on a plate. And so things have Indian names or Mexican names or whatever, but they're all of those, those Indian spices meet all of the, what I would call the dynamism of Mexican food. And they just weave them so perfectly that that's where, that's what I would say is a hidden gem. That's the one worth traveling for. Absolutely. It's worth traveling for, yes. Cool. Uh, All right. Favorite fast food? None. (laughs) I never eat it. I'm sorry. I kind of had a I was on this research trip, and (laughs) one night they were playing the Would You Rather Have This or That? And I couldn't answer a single question because I've never had any of it. You know, even as a kid, you hadn't had fat, like you never went to McDonald's. You know, I didn't grow up 
in an era. I'm you grew up at a barbecue restaurant. So yeah, I we either so. ate food from our things, but we would like once or twice a year be able to go to to a fast food place, Whataburger or McDonald's, and I. I didn't ever fall in love with any of that stuff, yeah, really. Never did so, it for you. all I can say is that I'm a chef. I can fix a good meal in 20 minutes. By the time I could stop and eat something like that, yeah. some, and my cupboard always has the possibility of something really good. So, it's just who I am. Yeah. I, I'm this weird guy. This is why the pandemic was so hard for me. I have never ordered delivery food of any kind including pizza and i know people laugh at me for that it's like you've never had you've never had a pizza delivered to your house no i have never had a pizza delivered to my house i know where so. i'm sending a pizza ah, <laughs> don't don't do it then i'll have to say well streak. once yeah exactly yeah you can't that one bastard yeah. <laughs> all right uh what's a part of mexican culture that you would like to see america adopt oh generous hospitality <laughs> without yeah. a doubt it's like the people are just they genuinely care for what's going on at your table if it's a restaurant or if you're in their home they want to make sure that you feel like you're at home <laughs> that is something that i learned on that very first trip to mexico and i have never forgotten it and we strive so hard for that in our restaurant. I don't think that we make it like Mexico does because uh, I take our staff to Mexico all the time and they'll go, it's like, oh, now I see what you mean about generous hospitality yeah. because that's what Mexico has to offer. That's a great answer. Tim and I are going to pretend to be part of your staff so we can join you yeah. on the trip. <laughs> uh, what is your favorite cocktail? Um, okay, so... I like stirred cocktails. Okay. Now is, that's uh, you're not supposed to hear that out of my mouth, no, right? It's, because but does it's Lani, like I'm is Lainey the say, one who's making you this cocktail? Uh, well, during the pandemic, my wife really, really got into making cocktails, and so now she's the one that does a lot of it. But when we all get together, um, Lainey and Kevin live next door to us, and so we have one meal a week. We all get together, and oh, we cool. all, it's like everybody brings something different, and usually Lainey will make the cocktail for that one. But okay. sometimes my my wife does but anyway my wife really got into the cocktails and i will say that um even though i live in the shaken cocktail world yeah <laughs> i love stirred cocktails okay and i will say that probably my favorite is a boulevardier mm, um it's a because good one i like bitter and so the Campari gives it a nice bitterness, but I also like brown spirits, so you can make it with rye or bourbon, and it's just so delicious to me. I like sippers, you know, that yeah. kind of stuff, not something that you just, you know, gulp down. Yep. All right. Very good. Well, I have a pretty good idea of what the answer to this is, but what trivia category would you, do would you absolutely dominate? Oh, God. I don't know. Um... Um, well, is there, could, could we have a trivia category that's called Mexican food? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Then I would do that. But I wouldn't be bad if avoiding it was... Avoiding pizza? If it was... Uh, avoid, <laughs> no, I wouldn't... How to avoid pizza delivery. I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be bad if it was called Broadway. Okay. Because I'm like super into live theater. Yeah. Um, and Broadway's its own thing, but I pay a lot of attention to Broadway. Okay. Um, to what do you attribute your success? It's a hard answer to that because I grew up in um, 
a very, very difficult family environment, a very difficult family environment. And I will say that probably the difficulty of that taught me how to persevere. And that would be one of the things that I would say. Now, difficult family environment, if you just flip that completely over and other people that I had in my orbit also gave me so much. I was raised by a whole bunch of really good cooks and they taught me how to love food and how to distinguish between good food and bad food. And they did that generously. So even though it was a very difficult environment, at the same time, there was just all of this richness around there as well. So I would say both of those things. Then I would add to that the fact that my mother was a public person. She was always the head of whatever organization she allied herself with, and she was super good in front of a crowd, and she made sure that by the time I was in like fourth grade, I was taking speech classes, which gave you poise in front of a group and all of that sort of same same thing with my brother. People say, how did, how did you two people that are in the media all the time are how how did that happen out of one family it's because my mother trained us and mm. so she made us be very careful to to be comfortable in front of a crowd and to be able to do whatever tackle whatever it was and you know the people that can express themselves actually usually come out on top and so i would say that that's another thing um that really but then I, the the fourth thing I'll say, this is a lot, I know, but it's not just one thing. But <laughs> no, I will say that the fourth thing that I would add to that is that I was a naturally curious kid. <laughs> I wanted to learn to do everything. And I was a creative one in the family. And I always wanted a creative project, and I would tackle anything. I mean, I tailored a sport coat for myself when I was in the sixth grade. I mean, it was just like I wanted to learn anything, you know? Yeah. If you had to make it with your hands, I wanted to learn to do it. And the the restaurant was always there, so I always was able to do that. But then I tackled all these other things. And so I think it's partly my success is just that I am just constantly taken in by everything that's around me you can give me about that's why that's why i'm terrible as a beach person because <laughs> i can't lie still in yeah. the sun yeah it's i feel like, similar i want to go i want to go for a walk yeah, i want to discover something you know yeah do no stuff. culture on the beach yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's but there's nature around you so you can learn you can go play with little crabs or you know whatever yeah. it is that would mm -hmm. be me yeah that's a good answer um all right and then our last question what is something that bars or restaurants do that might annoy you um, not put shareware on the plate when we are clearly going to share it at the table. Not that our place does it every time, but it is my biggest bugaboo. If I say, we're going to share these four dishes, and it comes, and there's no spoon there yeah. to spoon it out, and then I think, okay, so i got to take my spoon and put it on there, but what if I yeah, want my spoon lose your spoon. Yeah, you forget to take yeah. it back and you pass spoon, it. Yeah. It's like, You're there like, it is. My spoon? And, yeah. mm -hmm. and it causes so much confusion. <laughs> it's like, no, wasn't that my fork on that plate, yeah. you know, and all that kind of stuff. Just give me a spoon. 
spoon so that I can it can stay with the plate and nobody has to give up their shareware. I'm genuinely so, surprised that's the first time that's yeah, come that's up. That's a good one. That's a really good answer. It, it is just ones. the thing that bothers me the most because I love sharing food with people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> it's like to me, my happy place is at a table with people for several hours, okay? I like to go slow and I like to share stuff and I like to make sure that when we order stuff that, you know, it's not a tiny little portion of something so everybody has to cut a little bit of it mm-hmm. out. It's like if, if we need another order, let's get another order, okay? So that everybody can really enjoy this dish. So I love sitting at a table and just, you know, there's this thing in Mexico called the sobremesa and it is the time once all the food is finished where you just sit and enjoy each other's company, okay? And to me, it's it's the most precious time of any meal. It's like, yeah, we're eating and we're talking about the food and all that sort of stuff, and then it's done, and it's like, or the dessert's still on the table, and then we settle into these really deep conversations and have a good time with each other and get to know each other better. To me, that's the absolute best thing. I just came back from this research trip, um, and we did it in conjunction with the Dark Matter um, coffee people. And um, Oh, yeah, were you was, there with Lou as well? And with Lou, yeah, yeah Lou, Lou was there, Lou Bank, and um, his sidekick, Chava. Yeah. Um, and, and amazing people. Yeah. But so I didn't know the, I know, I've known Lou forever, but um, I didn't know the, the dark matter people except that we're working on a, on a collaborative project with chocolate, chocolate from a cacao from Mexico. And that's why we went on, on this trip together because it's going to the source and Very cool. figuring out who we were going to buy from for this project and stuff like that. And then up into Chiapas where the coffee's grown. And obviously that's their bailiwick. But, um, and we were also looking for to source some coffee for them to roast for us. Anyway, so it's like every night we were at the restaurant till 11 o'clock at night, even though we were starting at 7 the next morning because we would just be around the table and get to know each other. And it just like feels my, my heart was over full when I came home because it was just so much fun to get to know those passionate people, which I'd only known from a distance and shared emails with. But yeah. this was really spending time. That's very cool. That would have been a great name for a podcast, Sobre Mesa. Sobre Mesa. Yeah, That's right. yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, that was the last question. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, Absolutely. it's my pleasure. This was really fun um, to just share where I came from. And I'm really proud of what you guys are doing. Thank, Thank you. you. We Thanks really appreciate it. And that concludes our conversation with Rick Bayless. Thanks for listening. And remember to check us out on Instagram at JoinersPod for exclusive content, including throwback Thursday photos of our guests, as well as carefully crafted cocktails by our very own Danny Shapiro. This episode was produced by Matt and Teo Haddock and music by Captain Cuts. We'll see you next week. Music